Welcome to the Accountants Exposed podcast, where we create light bulb moments for our listeners by exposing the journeys, secrets, and insights of some of the top players in accounting. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Edelstein, Director and Founder of Recruitment Expert, a specialist accounting recruitment agency working across Australia, New Zealand, and Asia Pacific. Ladies and gentlemen and accountants, I had the pleasure of hosting Greg Hayes, one of the most prolific commentators in the accounting industry, having advised prime ministers and accounting bodies in tax legislation. Now, some of you may know Greg from growing Hayes Knight into one of the premier mid-tier firms in Australia, and others as a thought leader that's always mentioned in the media. However you may know him, today he shares his brilliant insight on some of the key structural and generational shifts that are occurring in our industry and how to manage some of those risks. Now, apologies in advance, we've had some issues with the sound quality from the platform we used that day. So, sorry that it's not our usual quality, but the content was so good, we had to run that anyway. Also, I know many of you listen to the podcast, so please, don't be coy. Could I please get some feedback of what you guys like and dislike and who you want in the show or topics you want covered, etc. Just send me an email to michael at recruitmentexpert.com.au. And also, please like us on iTunes and LinkedIn and recommend it to your network so they can benefit as well. Guys, this has been a labor of love, so some feedback would be greatly appreciated and some love as well. Anyway, enough of me. Let's get on with it. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for making the time to join me today. Now, we've known each other for, I think, well over 10 years now when you and Koshi presented us with the inaugural City of Sydney Business Awards. We were, and, both younger. we were both younger at the time. Yes. And the, I definitely had more hair back then, I can tell you that. Um, and we've had the opportunity to work exclusively with you for your equipment needs and watch your journey running a national accounting firm to recently running a listed business and many other things in between. Um, now, I'm curious, in those last 10 years or so, yeah. what have been some fundamental changes in the accounting industry that you witnessed? I think the changes in, in accounting and there's always there's always things that are happening sort of in accounting and most of us get sort of probably wrapped up in all the in the technical changes that are coming through sort of changes in taxation changes in superannuation changes in um, professional standards affect what we do on a day-to-day basis and, and one of the great dangers of that is that we sort of miss out on perhaps seeing sort of what's occurring at a higher level going on across the industry, across the, the profession, across, across the marketplace. So for, 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 many, for many firms, sort of the, the challenge is to not only keep up with all the things that um, your clients have needs for, uh, and which represent your professional responsibilities, but also to keep up with what's happening sort of with, with your business as, as an accountant. In terms of, I think, where the changes are coming through, there's a, there's a series of them and probably moving at um, at, at different pace. I think if, if I look at this last 10 years and looking forward a little bit, one of the, one of the fundamental changes that's occurring is that the, the market that accountants have served and ha- how accountants have won their business and how accountants have grown has fundamentally changed. Um, if, if, I, if I look back, let's say sort of even longer than that past 10 years, if I look back sort of 20, 25 years, Accounting firms have grown to a large extent sort of off um, of two very fundamental factors. And I'm talking about small, medium accounting firms. Mm-hmm. So 
th those two factors have been sort of one, uh, the baby boomer generation, that as clients have come along and um, become clients of a, of a particular firm, that as those businesses have grown, the accounting firm's grown. I mean, I, I, I can think of, and I sometimes use the example of, um, uh, of a client sort of going back into um, probably aging a little bit. This one actually goes back sort of to the, um, to the late 80s. Clients that came along asked us to uh, look after their their accounting work and typically their accounting and tax work. And, and, and we took that job on. Uh, it was a fairly simple job, um, reasonably straightforward, but a business that's growing. And at the time, I think we were charging when we started out with that client. We sort of were charging them sort of somewhere in the order of ten or twelve thousand dollars a year sort of for their um, for their accounting work. By the time we got to the early two thousands, that client, by virtue of their growth, we we were um, uh, we were generating fees of uh, around about one hundred and fifty thousand a year from that client. Wow! And so we we didn't have to go out and find a new client. We didn't have to go out and um, market our practice um, in terms of those extra fees, sort of what we had to do was deliver a good service and then go for the ride as that client business grew and developed. Mm. And so for, and many accounting firms would have exactly that experience, people they can think of who where business has grown. The other thing is um, we've, during sort of that, that, that extended period of time, we've had major change in the Australian economy. Um, so if, if you have a look at it, if you, if you look at sort of the, the changes that have occurred with, um, where if I go back far enough, but, and I, I say to people, sort of when I first went into practice, there was no CGT, there was no GST, there was no FBT, so there was no compulsory superannuation. It was nice and simple. On. You can go on and on and on, and people sort of say, what the hell did you do? <laughs> but we seem to be busy. But what's happened is the governments and governments of all persuasions have just forced them work into the accounting profession sort of um, by virtue of change, major structural change. And most of that major structural change is now done. There's not going to be another CGT. There's not going to be another GST. Hmm. Uh, and whilst, yes, there will be continued changes in um, tax legislation and super legislation that will, will be there, those big ticket force feed items aren't there. So what's all that means? Well, I think it means two things. One is um, we're not going to see the same level of structural change coming through that, is, that has been there in the past. And secondly, that generation of baby boomers is now actually fundamentally changing. So sort of we're now sort of halfway through the baby boomer generation sort of exiting sort of out of business. What that means is that for an accounting practice, that that, um, that client who I might have had who had now grown up to $150,000 worth of fees um, has by now sort of sold their business and is, is in retirement in that particular case, living a much simpler life. And so it's almost like Groundhog Day because the $150,000 has gone back to the ten dollars to $12,000 that was needed sort of just to sort of maintain their position because you know, perhaps they've got a superannuation fund, sort of a trust and, um, and their personal affairs. So that same growth that was being force-fed into accounting firms, it, it's actually sort of working in terms of, the, in terms of the generational issue. It's almost working in reverse. Um, mm. you, actually have to, you actually have to earn fees to maintain status quo not just to grow. And the challenge with that is that um, I think to a large extent, we have a generation of accountants now, and this is not a criticism, it's just a reflection. We have a generation of accountants now who have never had to market and hunt and beat and kill sort of to get their business. And going out and hunting for business, going out and marketing for business, many accountants sort of say sort of, you know, that that's, they're not skill sets that I, I naturally have. And so 
the the challenge for a lot of accounting firms is is going to be about managing that growth path sort of um, uh, coming through. We, we we need to train and we need to train and educate people sort of um, not just in the technical skills but also in those soft skills um, around how they can uh, how they can help sort of grow their business. Okay, is that something that you're doing through Knowledge Shop? Uh, look, I mean, Knowledge Shop does a bit of that. Um, it, it probably sort of is, um, it, it is probably more strongly focused uh, around the technical demand because mm. um, to some extent sort of um, uh, Knowledge Shop sort of seeks to meet the demand of, of the marketplace and um, the, the marketplace has a uh, voracious appetite sort of for, uh, for technical and technical change. But I mean, certainly, sort of, there there is going there is going to be a, this continuing need for um, uh, there is going to be this continuing need sort of for uh, growth and development of um, of business and growth and development of practices. So you know that that change is sitting there. Sort of, we've obviously got the whole technology piece that sort of is yep. is running as well, where um, increasingly sort of technology is removing the the lower end of work. Um, or, or in some cases may have totally removed the lower end of work that was there. And that lower end of work, um, which gave rise to the, in many cases, the gearing sort of and the leverage that accounting firms had sort of because that's where sort of the graduates and, um, and the intermediates sort of started to learn sort of their work and sort of um, and build their skills. Um, technology is taking a lot of that out. And mm. technology has moved from, technology's moved from sort of the, the efficiency of work. Um, I mean, if you if you look at the pathway in the in the accounting marketplace, we started off with technology as um, a mechanism sort of to make our lives more efficient and, and more effective. And I think most, without question, I think most firms have jumped on board with that. Um, technology then said, sort of, well, hold on, we can do a bit more than that. We can actually sort of um, analyze data and give you some level of um, uh, information sort of about sort of your clients, their businesses, what they've been doing, sort of how their trends and sort of get some trend analysis and, and that type of thing. And again, a lot of firms have, have jumped on board with that. And technology, which as it always does, sort of runs, is, is running sort of faster than, than most of us do sort of now sort of says, well, hold on, so there's this thing called artificial intelligence and predictive ability sort of where not only can we sort of make you more efficient, not only can we tell you what the trends have been in the past, but we can actually set us tasks and try and take to predict the future mm. and give you some indicators about sort of where, where things are heading in the future. So again, that ability for us to use technology sort of in, in the most effective way, um, that continues to um, be both sort of one of the opportunities and both one of the challenges for, um, for the profession as a whole. Okay. And look, I think you're in a ideal place to comment on that because you've got exposure via Knowledge Shop and sort of your, your platform that you've developed over the many years to see how I think you guys interact with over a thousand accounting firms and what what have you seen from your experience like how have they been managing that transition a with the baby boomer comment that you made and also just the technology piece um look I, I think it um, um I think it's it, it varies I mean we we see some firms who've managed managed both of those pieces spectacularly well um, we see firms who sort of probably struggle with it um, a bit, and um, accountants tend to be accountants tend to be a bit change resistant. Um, <laughs> and, uh, aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, we are all change resistant, sort of. But um, accountants are uh, by nature conservative, and so they sort of probably tend to be change resistant. And so, 
what we tend to see with, with all of these things is we see the early adopters and the people who sort of pick things up, um, the people who sort of say, sort of, I'm prepared to give this a go. Um, yep. the, the greater proportion say, let's just wait and see. And um, then there's another group, the rump or, of, of the profession sort of say, sort of, um, that's all nonsense, I'm never going to do that. Um, so I think in terms of where the profession's up to at the moment, and both in terms of managing its growth and also in terms of adoption of technology. And it's not necessarily the, the it's not necessarily the one group who are, who are the same in both areas. The early adopters are well and truly into it. The early adopters have seen this and um, you know they're, they're probably if they're listening to this they're probably saying sort of great sort of um, past tense sort of we're, we're real <laughs> the the larger part of the group are saying sort of, yes, we need to do something. We, we need to do, we are doing something here. So the larger part of the group sort of are, are, are somewhere along the somewhere along the pathway. And, and some of these things are easier to deal with than others. I mean, if you're a small practice with half a dozen people on your team or, a, or 10 people on your team, that issue of all of a sudden, we've got to go out and market the practice and, um, uh, and start bringing in new clients and develop the practice and all these sorts of things, that's a that's a fundamental challenge because you, you're already busy with all your day to day stuff. Yep. And if depending on sort of where where your practice is, um, if you're in Sydney at the moment, well, you've probably got most of your staff sort of working remotely, or all of your staff working remotely. If you're in Melbourne, you've probably got your staff working remotely and hope, hope, hoping they're going to be back in the office in the next week or so. And so you know we've we've got this COVID thing to deal with at the same time, but there's a fundamental challenge there that most accounting practices are pretty busy. And that whole tilt and shift of we've got to make some fundamental changes, that's that's a challenge and it takes time. Yeah, no, it's a lot of work because as you said, especially, well, especially the last 18 months has been a tremendous challenge just keeping up with all the changes and advising clients and that as well. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of forget about innovation except the fundamental of just allowing your staff to work from home and whatever technology was needed to make that happen, uh, which, which you know, it did spur on a fair bit of change for many county firms. As I say, what was it done in the last year is probably, you know, equivalent to what they've done in about 10 years. Um, well, yeah, look, I mean, I think that's right. And I don't think things are going to go back to, I think we're going to create, we're creating a new normal at the moment. Hmm. And that new normal is not only how businesses operate, but the new normal is how, how we operate. Um, do I think sort of um, that means that everybody's going to be working remotely in the future? Um, no, I don't, and I actually don't think it's necessarily. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily sort of a, a healthy outcome, sort of, um, to to have people sort of one hundred percent working remotely. Do I think there's going to be an increased um, use of um, uh, remote working? Absolutely. I, I don't think sort of it's a question of turn the light off, turn the light on. Um, we, it's we're a balance. Actually, we're actually creating a change, um, and there is going to become a new normal that comes out of this. There's a new normal that's going to come out. In the way we work, there's going to be a new normal in terms of the way we uh, we learn and, and sort of educate. Um, um, I know, sort of, um, just from the uh, certainly from the, the knowledge shop experience, um, clearly the, the training that they provided um, was both face-to-face -face training, sort of, and and remote learning training. And obviously, sort of over the over the past year, that's um, gone sort of almost totally to uh, remote training sort of um, webinars mm. and um, online online learning um, 
I don't expect that when we, when and well, when we get back to what we might call normal, I don't think we will go back to the same percentages in terms of the percentages that consumed face-to-face -face and the percentages that consumed online. Um, there'll be a new normal that'll be set there because um, there are a group of people who've said um, who perhaps didn't embrace online before and sort of didn't or didn't like it have now said sort of I've actually got this worked out sort of and I don't mind it and sort of yes I'm prepared to sort of want to keep doing that. Mm. I mean humans are creatures of habit like as much as we're resistant to change once we get used to something then we don't want to drop that because now yeah. that's a change again. Oh, yeah, it, look it'll be interesting to see because I mean there's a natural biological part of us that craves human contact and as much as you can do everything online you know i think accountants despite being seen as introverts kind of like traveling to a location and going to a conference once a year etc as many other professions well uh, i think there's a i think there's a learning aspect there that and and whether whether we're talking about sort of conferences whether we're talking about sort of um, professional development or whether we're just talking about the way you learn on the job there's a fundamental difference there in terms of doing it all remotely and being in a group, being in a group environment, um, in a mm. group environment, it's the it's the casual conversation, it's the rub of people sort of um, operating on something together, where um, there is so much learning that's done. And particularly if you're, um, you know, particularly if you're a graduate sort of out there in the marketplace, sort of with one or two years' experience, and that you're now working remotely, and allowing for all of the um, all of the things that technology allows us to do in terms of sort of teams meetings and zoom meetings and sort of all the different things that we can do mm -hmm. um that they, they are not a perfect substitute for that um being immersed in a um in a in a work environment sort of where you are actually seeing and learning and hearing and, and just picking things up sort of um around sort of how it's, there's a skills transfer that occurs there mm -hmm. um indirectly and um that's i think that's an important part sort of to all of our learning 100 percent. i'm going to circle back a little bit to what you said before um and ask you two questions one is with the firms such as you know your, your typical sole practitioner six or so staff what is the best way for them to address the challenge like the fact that they are busy the fact that there's a lot of change what, what's your advice to them how should they be tackling that issue I think they have to be more strategic, and this is probably true of all firms. But I mean, the, the reality is, the large, most of the large firms um, are strategic. Um, historically, the small firms um, haven't had to have been. It's not to say, I mean, many small firms are strategic, but historically, um, many firms haven't had to be strategic. Um, if I go back and sort of just reflect on sort of what we were talking about with the baby boomer generation and um, what we were talking about with um, uh, changing legislation for speeding work through. If your strategy was, and I, I, I've said this to groups before, um, if you were if you were a reasonable quality practitioner in terms of your standards and service uh, standards of work and standards of service, and your strategy was turn up, you would have been okay. You could have mm -hmm. grown a practice just on the basis of turning up to work each day. That's not true going forward. Turning up's not going to be enough you actually need, so you need to be a little bit more strategic. And that means initially carving out some, a, a bit of time to stop and think and say, who, you know, what's, what's our ideal client? Who is, who is our client? Who is it that sort of we want sort of coming into this, into this firm? 
and then sort of um, once you've worked out who your client is, then and sort of where the areas are that perhaps you've got some level of um, competitive advantage and level of sort of comfort around sort of you know where your skill sets are and where you can add that where you can add best value. Um, then you go out and start to say sort of okay, how do I find those people? Um, mm. Because I need more of that type of people. Again, the the majority of small meeting small medium accounting practices have grown up on the basis of anybody who walks in the door is a good client. Um, you know, if I think back to when I first started in accounting and um, I didn't have a I, I didn't have a I didn't have fees, I'd opened an office and thought the world needs another accountant. Uh, and <laughs> I say to groups sort of um, you know who was who was my ideal client? Um, the answer was um, anybody who had a pulse. Um, if they if they had a pulse um, and um, came in the door and said I needed some accounting services, I was your person. Problem was, and and, and that worked. Um, and you know, uh, many of the practitioners who'd been in practice for a longer term sort of would would nod their heads and say sort of yep that that worked. And some of those people um, grew into sort of being sort of quite large clients. Um, but it wasn't strategic at all. It mm. was really sort of opportunistic. Sort of I'm here. I'm in the marketplace. Let me sort of build some fees um, and build some clients. Challenge came sort of as the practice grew that I had such a disparate base of clients, um, all of whom sort of regarded me as being sort of um, uh, their, their experts sort of in all things um, uh, financial and tax and the like. But I actually sort of um, w was going to be, find myself in a situation where I just couldn't take on any more, more work because the limitation we all have is somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000. And what mm -hmm. I'm talking about is 1,600 and 2,000 hours a year. Yep. Uh, you, you, the, the reality is, irrespective of how you charge your fees and how you earn your income, in terms of what you can do inside your practice, you've got so many hours. Mm. And once those hours are gone, they're gone. So I think for practices today, be they large or small, it is about sort of being a little bit more strategic. A bit what more what does that mean? Like specifically, so if you were running a, a small practice right now yeah. um, with six staff or even like yeah. two partners, 12 staff, whatever, okay. what would you be doing okay. differently? Um, if, if I hadn't done this before, the first thing I'd be doing is um, doing a, a bit of a, a quick analysis of, uh, of my client base. So mm -hmm. What sort of clients have I got? Um, uh, you know, sort of what, what areas do they work in in terms of their... Um, specialities and, and sort of what does my practice look like in terms of business clients, individual clients, superannuation funds, sort of w whatever it is. Um, what sort of work am I good at or, or are we good at? Sort of, um, are we good at small business? Are we good at working with entrepreneurs? Are we good mm -hmm. at working with individuals? Are we good at working with clients who are sort of in the, in the property market? Um, what, sort of, what sort of business are we good at? How would I like to, if I had my choice about who the next client that was going to walk in the door would be, what would that client look like? So would it be a, would it be a small business owner? Would it be a contractor? Sort of, would it be a property owner? Uh, would it be a mid-sized business or a mid-sized hmm. um, And once I've worked out what I've got, and then I work out who I'd like to have in terms of where my growth is coming from, then it's a question about where do I need to go to find those type of clients? What do I need to be doing in terms of positioning my practice? Now, positioning your practice is how you present the practice. It's about your website. Sort of, it's about so um, doing a rebranding exercise, basically. Well, not it might be Michael. Sort of, um, it might be sort of rebranding, but it might, but it, it's about clearly saying 
here's our focus. Um, mm. Not necessarily in those words, but by virtue of what you do. Um, in Hayes Knight, sort of, we have a we have a large uh, valuation practice, and we do a lot of valuation work. Um, uh, uh, yeah, a, a body of that sort of is across our own client base, and a lot of it is referred to us from from other accounting firms who don't specialise in that needs of somebody independent. So we do a lot of valuation work. So um, one of the things we do is we talk to the market about things to do with changes that are occurring in value, sort of and things that can impact sort of valuation. Um, mm -hmm. As some of the accounting firms, we sort of say to them, sort of, uh, you know, here's some trends or, or things that are occurring. What we, we're just simply, we're not going out there and saying sort of, uh, we do valuations, please send your valuations to us. We're talking to the market about things they need to understand about that. So if I'm a small, medium practice and I want to go out and um, let's say I want to go out and um, specialise in the medical profession, then I might want to be sort of putting material on my website and talking to them about things that the medical profession are going to be interested in. Mm -hmm. um, because as, as people sort of come on and look at that, they say, okay, so these guys know something about that, <laughs> whatever yep. it is. Credibility, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's about building, it's about building credibility. Um, and then it's about being in, putting yourself into, and this becomes the challenge for um, the, generally the principals and the partners, the starting point for this tends to be the principals and partners being able to carve out some of their time to be out hunting and gathering. Um, mm. Now, some principals and partners are less comfortable with that than others, but reality is that principals and partners, if you look at your chargeable time, your chargeable time probably should not be any more than 50% of your available time. And depending mm -hmm. on the size of the practice, maybe it's less than that. And, and the reason why it should be sort of not much more than 50% is because the rest of your time should be sort of around sort of developing the practice, building the practice, and uh, hunting and gathering, sort of uh, being out there in those environments that uh, cause you to be talking to what hopefully a prospective client. What does that look like? What, what's the best way to go hunting? For a firm today, besides content marketing, as you said, which hopefully is you know inbound marketing and creates a bit of a funnel for you, what what are some other ways when you talk about hunting? Oh, look, I think I think the hunting piece is um, go and once you've identified the type of clients you're after, find out either who else is dealing with those clients, mm -hmm. and perhaps sort of through relationships, start to build relationship with somebody who's already dealing with that marketplace. Yep. Um, the, the other option, of course, is find out where that market meets and sort of operates and, um, and works and get yourself immersed inside that market um, so that you, you are meeting people that, that are in that space. I, I mean, obviously, sort of the, the other op option is um, get, go and find another practice that sort of is um, where perhaps the partners want to get out and sort of have got some of those clients or got the client profile the drafter and, um, uh, and acquire the practice. Okay. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question to one of the comments, which was like the automation piece and how the you know you used to have graduates that would do that, etc. Now, kind of that simpler and earlier tasks in the process get kind of done by AI or some tools, etc. Yeah. How, how has that affected sort of how you go about hiring people now? Well, I think it's I think it's causing a change and. That change creates, I think that change creates a challenge for the profession that, that is quite separate from the challenge for the individual firm. 
we, we probably need, for many firms these days, they need less, less graduates. So that the skill set that they're after is, is probably sort of up at, at quite, at a slightly higher level. And so the old pyramid that um, accounting firms used to work under sort of where you'd have a group of graduates and some intermediates um, together with sort of a senior and a manager and a partner, um, that hierarchy sort of is, or, or, or that pyramid has changed around a bit. Um, you, you, you don't need as many people sort of at the lower end because that lower end processing work is, is not available. And so you're looking for people with slightly more developed skill sets and or people who you can train quickly into more analytical and predictive and predictive work. Because ultimately, from the client's point of view, the client may have automated themselves, or they're they're using automation sort of directly, indirectly, sort of to reduce a lot of that lower level work. Mm -hmm. So you're after people who can sort of actually do more more work at a at a higher level. Um, so I think sort of part of what's coming out of our our change is. Um, uh, one, a higher level of specialisation. So the opportunity is there for accountants to do more specialised work. And also the, the need to be, um, the, the need to look at that, that computer literacy, that computer efficiency, that can produce and manage data quite quickly. And, and there's, you know, there, there's a skill set that's there. I might be I might be brilliant in terms of uh, my ability to analyse information and advise based on the information that's coming out. Yep. I might be a bit ordinary sort of in terms of the actual management of data and getting the data sort of into the format and sort of uh, available for me to um, to do that analysis across. And so mm -hmm. there's different skill sets that are coming. So what does it mean for grants coming out of uni now, given that there's just less demand for that yeah. level? And everyone wants a senior accountant. Like when I speak to my clients, everyone wants three years CA qualified. I'm like, well, so does everyone else. Yeah, well, that's that's the problem, and that's why there's a lot of grads who are um, who are doing sort of um, different type of work at the present time, sort of because they just can't find a role. And um, you know, I, I know from a recruiting point of view, if if we if we go out to recruit for a graduate or we advertise for a graduate, you're just inundated. Mm, it's hundreds of applications. It's crazy. Yeah, you're inundated with that. That's why. That's why. I, I, even though it's so simple to get them, I think firms are so overwhelmed. They're like, "Okay, Michael, can you? Well, you know, we'll pay. We'll pay you something. Just to filter. Just do it. Yeah, because yeah. I, I just don't have time to go through hundreds of CVs. Still doing folders and stuff. And so, from a graduate's point of view, if if they're going into a market where, when they apply for a job, there's going to be another hundred or two hundred people who have applied for the same job, that those graduates need to find a way to differentiate themselves so that sort of they're their application or their presentation of themselves sort of stand out sort of by virtue of um, yeah, I guess by virtue of sort of other skill sets that they've they've developed. So um, do you still hire grads yourself these days? Uh, yeah, we still take on we still take on grads. We don't take on as many as we used to, but we we still take on grads. Do you train them in a different way to the way you used to? Like, is there a different process yeah, now to upskill them in yeah. a different? Yeah. Uh, so we we want to get so when we when we bring a grad on we're looking sort of for a, a reasonably accelerated program 
mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of their learning. So you know, we're we're not talking to them about sort of the debits and the credits and um, uh, this. So we're looking for an accelerated program in terms of in terms of their learning. So we have them sort of working closely with um, uh, an intermediate or a senior sort of who um, can skill them up sort of quickly. And then ideally, we want to have them so that within six months or so, they're engaging with clients, um, not engaging in clients to advise, but they're actually engaging with clients. So we want to start to build that, to make sure we can build those soft skills mm-hmm. about understanding sort of understanding sort of people, understanding sort of that when somebody, you know, when you contact them or they contact you, not everybody's going to be on their sort of have their happiest day and sort of sometimes they're going to be sort of upset about something and sometimes you're going to need to sort of manage um, you know sort of some of that human interaction and, and human relationship but we actually want them to sort of have client engagements sort of, um, really on. quickly and then sort of you know, progressively develop and, uh, and evolve that client relationship has it changed the criteria like if you look back what you the way you did your recruitment 10 years ago for grants and for people in general to the way you do it now has that changed in terms of traits you look for, the way you interview them? I think the traits are still similar, but I think perhaps the weighting has changed. Um, you know, you, you, if you looked at their skills and said, sort of, or looked at a person and said, what are their, what, what are their technical skills? Um, are they, you know, so what are their technical skills? What are their current soft skills like, sort of in terms of the way they present themselves, the way they speak, that kind mm. of thing? Um, and um, how um, how intelligent are they? And, and I mean that kindly. Um, <laughs> they, they, those things have always been there. We probably put we probably put less emphasis on the technical skills at the present time because we have relatively low expectation. Um, mm. In terms of their technique, somebody coming straight out of university, sort of, yeah, forget about it. What a textbook says, they haven't, they don't have sort of high level technical skills. They know what a T ledger is, and even that's useless now. Yeah. Because yeah. software does it for you. Yeah. yeah. So the so the soft skills, um, sort of, and, and it, it, we're not looking for specialists. We're, we're looking for people who've got the fundamentals there, sort of, in terms mm. of soft skills. They, they know how to present themselves, sort of, and they know how to when they speak and sort of enter into a conversation, they can sort of, you know, they, can, um, they can engage and communicate sort of reasonably well. Okay. But Great. They're, they're fundamentally smart people. Um, okay. If you get smart people who are, who want to learn inquisitive, um, you can, you can feed a lot into them in a short period of time. How do you assess for that? How do you assess how smart someone is? Do you just look at the transcripts or is there something else you would do? Um, look, for, we, we look at their we look at their transcripts. We look at what they've done, uh, both academically and uh, more broadly. And um, uh, in some cases, we would do some um, um, psychometric um, testing. Okay, I was thinking um, to what you said before, like accounting firms that you know need to grow and all of that. I think the counter argument would be. Greg, we've got plenty, you know, of referrals. We always have referrals coming in from our existing client base because, as you said, you know, we turn up, we do a good job, etc. So, you know, why do we really need to go and do this hunting thing? Like, sounds like a lot of work, as as you said before. Don't have a lot of time, um, you know. And most accounting firms do. Like, if they deliver a decent service, mm. they would get some referrals. That is usually the reason they grow every year by one or two percent, three percent. 
would that not be the case? Are, if, if you're growing by, if you're not growing at all, or you're growing by 1% or 2% a year, that is an at-risk group. Because if all you have to do is look and say, let me have a look at my top three, four, five clients. Mm -hmm. And how much do they represent as my practice? And if those top three, four, five clients, and in the, I'd say in the typical accounting practice, and you know, I'm, I, I'm cautious about this because there are so many, I appreciate there's so many variations of firms. And if you look at that top group of clients, that top group of clients often represents 10, 20% of the, of the practice. Mm -hmm. so if you're growing by sort of one or 2% or you're not growing at all, you've got a few risks in your practice. One risk in your practice is that one of those or a couple of those clients leave, and I don't mean leave because they're dissatisfied. A couple of those clients sort of leave, they retire, so they sell their business. So any one of sort of um, a hundred events that sort of could happen and actually will happen at some stage or other. If any one of those clients leaves, sort of, then that sort of cuts a that cuts starts to cut a hole in your practice. Get a few of those occur in the same year, and it cuts a bigger hole in your practice. Hmm. Your other challenge is sort of that you're a practice of um, if you're a practice of five, six, ten people, you're probably reasonably reliant on at least a group of those five, six, ten people. You, you have to have people there who have got to a stage where they're comfortable not to go much further or grow much further. And so what, what do a lot of accounting firms complain about? They complain about sort of, um, we, you know, we took this intermediate on, sort of we gave them the best five years of our life and then they left us. Uh, <laughs> rotten, miserable bastards. So sort of, why did they do that? Sort of, um, uh, why do we employ people? Um, but you know, it really came down to sort of, um, you, you'd, you'd remove the ability for that person to continue to grow because they'd learned everything they could learn and there was nowhere further for them to grow. Um, mm. And so I, I think the risk is that if a, if a firm is not growing, and, and I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood about this because you, you might be a firm that is, or a practitioner or a practice that sort of is, you know, five years out sort of from um, retirement or five to 10 years from succession and you sort of say, so well, I don't want to keep growing, growing, growing. Um, and th there are times where that's, that's okay. Um, if, if you're not growing, sort of your, your risk is that your best and your brightest will leave because mm. they, want keep, they want to keep learning and growing. Um, and that's where you know, you'd, you'd know more about it than me, Michael. That's where sort of, you know, somebody comes along to you sort of who's, putting themselves out there in the marketplace and says, I want to leave, I want to, I want to go somewhere else. Yeah. Probably most of them aren't doing that because they've been fired from the firm that they were with. <laughs> most of them are doing it because they think there's a better opportunity. They can learn more, they can earn more and they, or they just want to do something different. We, we live in a market where um, people aren't signing up for life. People aren't sort of saying, sort of, I want to be in this firm for the, for the next 20 years. They're saying sort of, I want to go to another firm, get another experience and sort of build and grow and, and develop and, yeah. Maybe I'll only be with that firm for five years or three years. Or... I mean, I was going to say five. Five years of stretching it these days, Greg. Two, two and a half is is pretty good now. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. I mean, sort of. And again, I think you. And that maybe is if if that's true. And you, as I say, you would know more about that than I do. So if if two and a half is pretty good, I think that's a reflection, and I think that's a really sad indictment on the accounting profession. 
Because mm. if two and a half is good, that says that most people are going to are highly mobile and are going to keep moving. If I look at if I look at our staff um, or our team sort of in phase nine, I've got fifty percent of that team that have more than ten years with the firm, and you know we we, we recognise that sometimes things don't work out and sometimes sort of you know people move and. You know, we we I think we, we lost somebody the other day, sort of because um, sort of their partner uh, took a job interstate, and sort of mm. you know, that's sort of, life happens. Yeah, stuff happens. Um, yep. that's, that's okay. But you actually need to have you actually need to have that growth and development coming through there. Otherwise, you're continually going to be in that in that sort of um, problem area of um, high level turnover of staff, and high level turnover of staff impacts profitability. Um, mm. So. If I see a firm that's if I see a firm that's underperforming at a at a profitability level, um, and then I look at sort of staff turnover rates, um, sometimes there's sort of sometimes there's a causal connection between the two. Yeah, and also because obviously it wouldn't impact the client um, relationship as well and client retention because if you constantly have to deal with new staff, there's mistakes being made, clients are not happy, you know, there's a higher chance of them leaving as well. Yeah, well you look at you look at the biggest complaints sort of you know firms, businesses that leave sort of the, the large firms. Mm-hmm. Um, you look and say sort of what is it that what causes them to leave, what are, what are their complaints? Um, look apart sometimes from the fee levels that sort of um, the, the big firms, some of those big firms are charging. Sort of the, the other complaint is I'm always dealing with a different person. Sort of I just got used to um, this person sort of looking after my work and they've moved on or mm. changed or, or whatever. Um, pe- people like people like consistency. Yeah. Um, and you know, as, as one client sort of said to me years and years ago when I uh, was trying to actually move them over to sort of one of our managers to look after them because I was trying to reduce um, uh, my my client engagement sort of um, or, or some of my client engagement level. Um, you know, one of those clients sort of said to me, Greg, so if it's taken me 20 years to train you, I don't have to train somebody else. <laughs> um, think about it from think about it from the customer's point. Yeah, but I don't know what you meant to do with that. In just because, as you said, like as a recruiter, no one really stays that long unless they have the ambition, you know, to become a partner, and even that usually gets questioned at some point in time. Yeah. Um, but majority will fall off the cliff. I find after the CA, they'll go, okay, cool, I'm going to move to commerce. And then the second cliff is usually around the, the manager level where they're like, you know what, I don't want to be a partner, you know, and they make a decision whether they just want to be a career manager yeah. or they move into like a finance manager role at, at one of their clients or, you know, another commercial business. So there's usually like two cliffs there. Um, so you, you will always lose staff at approximately three years and about five to seven. Um, what are you meant to do with that? Like in terms of the client, you know, dealing with that client complaint. Do you just manage expectations and say, look, we're a professional services firm, you know, we can't control our, can't control people, people have lives, they they have their own aspirations and you know, you're just think, gonna have to deal goes, with it. Yeah, look, I, I think this goes back to um, in terms of how do we approach it, it goes back to how many people are engaged with clients. Um, mm-hmm. in an ideal world, um, I want to have at least four or five of my people engaged engaged with a client. Mm-hmm. Now um, it's probably being sort of, you know, we're not a huge firm, but being a bit larger, sort of, it's probably easier for us because um, we have, um, we, we operate in, in team structures. So, you know, there's an audit team, there's a superannuation team, so there's a business services team, 
then there's a specialist tax team and there's a corporate finance team. So when a client comes and, and joins us, and, I, and I'm talking about a business client, one, they're typically exposed to multiple partners yep. because there's multiple partners who are looking after those different areas. And secondly, they're then engaged with um, people from those different teams. Mm. So there's, so a, a typical client sort of um, for Hayes Knight might have, um, might have engagement with five or six people. Um, that, that actually softens the issue. So if, if all of a sudden um, Dave's not there anymore, okay, Dave's not there anymore, but sort of um, the other four people I'm dealing with are there. Um, yep. So it, it certainly softens it from that. But what do you do for a small practitioner that has so six staff? For a small practitioner, what you'll generally find is the primary relationship is held with the principal or partner. Mm. So providing that principal or partner doesn't leave, that is the strongest glue that, that is there. Um, and so for principals and partners, that, um, um, that does protect them somewhat. But then if you want to leverage yourself, which is like the advice is that you should get your juniors involved and, you know, lever because otherwise you're constrained by the amount of hours you have. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you would then do, I think sort of for that smaller firm is you would probably have a couple of people who are, have some level of engagement with the client. Um, mm -hmm. So that, um, and, and, and that level of engagement also can include so that at an admin level, uh, because I mean, some of your admin people can be the greatest resources in the world sort of because they, when they're, they're following up a client sort of to chase up work or sort of to get some information sent through or to do something or other. Um, and, and we've seen this over, over the years. So some of our admin people, you know, they, they're not ringing up to talk to the client about technical things. They actually know the client sort of had a birthday the other day. So well, they yep. know that their kids have just gone to school or whatever. And they're, they're having that conversation sort of with them. And again, sort of, um, you know, frequently I'll, I'll hear from clients and they'll sort of refer back to one of our admin staff mm. who sort of says, oh, you know, sort of, um, Nan, Nan was talking to me the other day, sort of, and she remembered sort of uh, about sort of, uh, you know, it was my birthday or she remembered it was this or that. And um, you know, again, so that's it's just sort of part of the glue that's in the relationship. So for a small firm, I think um, absolutely the, the, the strongest piece of glue that's there is that principal and partner time. Yep. And principal partner sort of just needs to make sure that they're spending their time um, in the most valuable way uh, in terms of that client relationship. Then sort of that they've got one or two, at least one or two other people who've got some engagement um, with the client. Yes, mm. if, if things change, well, um, you, you've still got to manage your way through that. But um, hopefully, you've got more than more than one connection there. So all the client yeah. has more than one connection with the firm. Um, you mentioned before about you know valuations is a big part of your business, and I know yeah. despite being a tax accountant, your specialty is actually corporate finance evaluations, and you've published mm -hmm. a number of books on sale of businesses, valuations, public practice management. What are your views on how accounting firms are valued? What, what are some mistakes that they're making? Um, I, when you say mistakes they're making... Um, well, you see being made evaluations, but both for accounting firms and in general, like businesses, because now that there's a lot of baby boomers that are, that are retiring, both from the accounting industry and their own clients, um, and there's a, probably a lot of demand for valuations. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of activity me, going on. Two levels. I'll talk to it sort of first of all, perhaps at the accounting level, and then let me talk at the client level um, because it affects it affects all firms. Um, at a professional at the professional level, in terms of what are accounting firms worth, people get hung up 
on, um, and again, if you understand the accounting market, um, highly fragmented market, sort of 10,000 or so firms out there. And um, if you get past the, if you get past the top, um, I mean, to get into the top 100 firms, I think you needed around about um, uh, ballparks of $4 million worth of turnover to get into the, into the top 100 firms in Australia. And they're only the firms who, um, who decide to participate in the survey. So let's mm. say sort of the top 100 firms, um, uh, you know, there might be sort of twice that many sort of, um, but you quickly get down to sort of much smaller firms. Um, now, and, and the greatest proportion of our firms um, continue to be, um, despite the changes that are occurring, greatest proportion of our firms can, without question continue to be sole practitioners and two partner firms. Mm. Um, now, the marketplace talks about firms in terms of um, they're, they're valued on a cents in the dollar basis. Yep. Um, and um, certainly if, if you talk to a lot of brokers, brokers will, will, will talk to you about sort of maintainable fees is sort of the basis of the value of accounting firm. If you are a small firm that, and, and you're looking at a, at a whole, of firm, whole of firm transaction, you're looking to sell your firm, you're looking to buy your firm. Yep, sort of cents in the dollar, sort of maybe, mm. sort of um, maybe, sort of an, an appropriate methodology. And understanding even with cents in the dollar, there, there's a range there. If, however, you're a a larger firm, and, and our experience is that once firms go a bit past that million dollars or so in fees, so we're not talking about huge, sort of, we're just talking about firms that are a bit more mature. Once you go past that million dollars or so worth of fees, and certainly by the time you've got to one and a half to two million dollars worth of fees. Firms aren't valued on a cents in the dollar basis, irrespective of what, well, intelligently they're not valued on a cents in the dollar basis. They're valued on their maintainable earnings. Because if, if I'm buying a firm and I'm going to pay sort of a, a reasonable amount of money, and that reasonable amount of money is reflected by sort of the, is largely represented by the goodwill of the firm. So I'm not buying sort of hard, Excuse me. I'm not buying a lot of a whole lot of hard assets. There might be a bit some stuff there, but the real value in the firm is in the intangibles, in the goodwill of the firm. Um, the value of that firm is in its earnings, and in its normalised earnings. So, mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of people sort of get sort of hung up on the top line number, and forget that the bottom line number is actually sort of where where value is. Um, so, if, if I'm valuing a firm that sort of is is turning over a couple of million bucks a year but not making any money well that firm's not going to have a great firm. sort of it's not going to have a huge value now i'm talking about on a normalized basis sort of mm -hmm. you, you've got to you've got to strip out all the things that are abnormal or um which represent just sort of the, the way the owners sort of operate the business equally if i'm looking to bring in a partner and, and sometimes this sometimes is is the danger people get into. If I'm looking to bring in somebody to take up equity in the firm, and I'm saying, oh, look, our firm's worth a dollar in the dollar <coughs> in fees, even for a small firm, and that might be okay, the, the question still is on a qualitative basis, what what is that firm producing? So um, I think increasingly, we need to focus on the profitability of our firms. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the great things about small accounting firms and which we should never take away from them, <coughs> is that small accounting firms provide to the principals and partners that decision about balance between financial return and quality of life. Mm -hmm. 
and there's there's some accounting firms who, who principals and partners who sort of say to me, Greg, I, I actively choose not to work the hours that I could work yep. because I'm happy with sort of X number of dollars in terms of my return. And that's okay. Um, that's one of the great, it's one of, one of the great um, uh, luxuries that, um, that small business accounting firms provide, sort of that you can organise your business to um, other aspects of your life. Yep. When it comes, however, to what's the business worth, the financial piece becomes, becomes pretty important. Can you give some examples of the, the matrix that you kind of look at and how you apply, what sort of numbers you apply to them? Yeah. Um, look, I, w when we look at an accounting firm, sort of we look at, uh, we start off yeah, with, with the revenue, we look at sort of what the profits are, we look at what a market, we look and say sort of what, what is the principal being paid? Um, so in some firms, the, the principals or partners are earning a fixed salary sort of in, in the same way that they would sort of in a, in, a, in a corporate environment. In other cases, they're just taking they're just taking their share of the profits. Mm -hmm. So we, we look at the, at the firm, look at its earnings. Um, we normalize for a principal or partner's market-based salary. Um, and there's plenty of, there's plenty of um, objective data out there in the marketplace to say what those numbers are. And then we look at what the return is. Now, if an accounting firm is, is not making better than 15% on revenue, mm -hmm. then it's underperforming. Is that net profit or yeah. gross profit? Net profit. Okay. So if it's not making 15, and it's after principals and partner salaries. Mm -hmm. All right. So after principals and partner salaries, if it's not making sort of at least 15%, it's underperforming. The, the top, the top 5% of firms across this country make a return of between 20 and 30%. Yep. So just understand the kind of one third, one third, one third rule. Yeah, a little bit. Well, that one third, one third rule sort of embeds in that sort of the, the labor cost of a principal or partner. Yep. And from a value point of view, in terms of what's the value of the business, I, I need to separate out what the partner gets paid for doing the job mm -hmm. and what really is the genuine profit of the firm. And so from a value point of view, what I'm interested in is what's the real profit of the firm. Yep. That's, so that's after allowing sort of a, a market-based salary for, for the principals. What sort of market-based salary are you applying these days? Um, well, it's not what I'm applying. If you go and look at the, um, for instance, the um, Hayes personnel, H-A-Y-S, not, it's nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, but if you look at the Hayes personnel, that, they produced a salary survey for the accounting profession and they've been doing it for years. And they actually provide sort of um, the salary levels for um, mm. um, a whole range of roles, but sort of professional practices. They break it, they give you the intermediate roles, the, you know, the grad roles, intermediate, yep. seniors, that. So principals and partners, they would say that what principals and partners get paid for doing their working in the practice, doing their job. So if you're if you're Sydney, um, and they break it up statewide, but Sydney and Melbourne probably not too different from each other. Um, salary, the median salary is, um, uh, and look, I'm not sure if I'm quoting the exact figures here, sort of from their survey, but the median salary is probably around 175, 180,000, mm -hmm. uh, so plus super and benefits. Um, and the range is probably 
look, the range is probably 10 to 15% sort of um, um, either side. Um, but yeah, who knows what the highest figure is? Nobody sort of nobody really knows that. So it's not not that important. So yep. if I'm looking, if I'm doing a evaluation of a practice in in Sydney, um, and let's say sort of it's a you know it's a it's a mature practice uh, with a you know, sort of a mature client base, um, then I, I'm probably looking and saying sort of well, principals and partners um, somewhere between sort of. If, if it's a suburban practice, somewhere between 160, 180,000. If it's a CBD practice, I'm probably saying sort of 180 to 200,000, yep. um, then plus super and, and, and benefits. Um, mm -hmm. So say they do like 20, 25%, like, you know, a, a, a decent practice, okay. you know, 20, 25% profit. Yep. Um, what sort of valuation would multiple. they be getting? Yeah. So, well, the, the multiple then it, that we're going to apply that multiple is, from an evaluation point of view, the multiple's a measure of risk. So it's, it's a question of what's the risk to that practice. And so I need to then find out sort of um, some of the other underlying things about that. I mean, as an example, um, if they've got a practice where they've got a key client that represents um, you know, 10% of their fees or 15% of their fees, um, mm. if they've got co concentration risk around clients, if they've got concentration risk around staff or um, what's going on in the practice. So you're looking at sort of what the risk profile of a practice is. Yep. Um, again, that small, medium firm, if, if it's producing that sort of 20 to 25%, which says it's, it's producing quality up, that small, medium firm is probably going to be on a multiple of somewhere around um, 4 to 4.5 um, is, is about where the multiple is. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen, you, you see some firms that will go higher than that. Um, generally, there's some unique characteristics around that that's sort of pushing that number upwards. Um, like the, what? Uh, look, I mean, I, I've seen firms that have gone to, I've seen firms that have gone to five, five and a half. Um, but as I say, sort of they're, they've got some, they would have some quite unique characteristics around sort of their, um, their revenue stream, their growth. I mean, what you're looking for is you're looking at um, what's the growth rate, for instance, coming through in the firm. So if the growth rate, if there's a strong growth rate coming through in the firm and they've got clear leverageable, um, a clear leverageable structure that's that's contributing to that profitability, um, then you can actually say, so, well, look, I might be buying the firm on the basis of um, $6 million worth of fees that it's doing at the present time, but based on their history, I know sort of I'm actually there's already embedded into that six million dollars another sort of you know half a million dollars or a million dollars of growth that's sort of already coming through because that's that's what they do. Um, mm. So, what are some of those factors that lead to that though? Like you mentioned, you know, revenue streams and the, the way they leverage. What what are what are some of those factors exactly that you've seen that lead to firms being valued that well or at a higher level? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, as I say, growth rate. Um, uh, established brand and, and presence in the marketplace, mm -hmm. um, specialist, you know, perhaps specialist skill areas that they have that are produced that sort of allow them to do um, higher levels of profitability of work. So, in other words, what causes their profit to be what it is? Um, is it just that they do a huge amount of volume, sort of that um, keeps dropping sort of the stuff off and it's leverage that's doing that? Are they doing high value work? Yeah. And, and depending on the size of the firm, um, you, you're probably seeing a mix of those things sort of contributing in. Um, where that you're getting different sort of drivers into profit. Um, and how's COVID had an impact on it? Um, like... Look, COVID has been COVID has been sort of really um, COVID's been quite unique, and, and this is true both of 
um, of accounting practices, but business, just business generally. Mm. Um, COVID obviously has caused this situation and from a valuation point of view, it creates some challenges because for, for, for most businesses, there was a, um, there was a pause that occurred sort of in um, around um, second quarter of, the, of 2020. Uh, <clears throat> so April, May, June, uh, a lot of businesses sort of um, were dislocated sort of because of the initial reaction of COVID. Um, and then sort of, um, then sort of there was progressive changes that flowed through. Now, depending on what industry you're in, that, that was quite different. I mean, if you're in hospitality, um, mm. you, you were knocked around heavily. If you're in travel, you were knocked around heavily. If yeah. you're in entertainment, sort of you were, you, you were knocked around, um, you, you were knocked around heavily. Other businesses have just had boom times because of COVID. Yep. Um, if you're in transport, sort of if you're in home entertainment, um, PPE in, gear. Yeah, PPE <laughs> gear. Sort of if you were in anything to do with, you know, if, if you talk to businesses that, um, you know, um, domestic recreation, sort of boats, caravans, um, uh, any businesses in those sort of those sort of spaces have had boom periods. So, in terms of the impact of COVID, you've got to have a look and say, sort of, um, which, as I say, is a lead indicator to transactions, um, and a lot of that, um, while some of it, there, yes, there was some catch up there from 2020. A lot of it, I think, has really come out of COVID. And people sort of who have been affected by COVID and, and in different ways, some positively and some negatively. And those people sitting back and saying, sort of, I actually want to make some changes. Um, mm. In some cases, it's, I think there's some opportunities out there. I think there's some opportunities for us to, to grow scale um, by, by doing some acquisitions. In some cases, it's people who are saying, look, this is just all too hard. Um, I was contemplating sort of, um, uh, retiring or changing sort of business in the next few years. This just brings it forward. Um, there are some people who've said, I've got used to working from home and sort of um, taking sort of life a bit easier. I might even bring forward sort of um, bring forward that retirement point. So I think in, in a whole range of ways, COVID has acted as this catalyst for people to say sort of that, that some change needs to happen. And you know, and in some cases, it's changed where sort of people have sat back and said, um, you know, I think in terms of our internal structure, I think in terms of some of, you know, my fellow shareholders or partners or whatever, there's some change that's needed there. So um, COVID has acted as a, as a real catalyst and I we expect to see and we are seeing um, a significant increase in uh, merger and acquisition activity. And I think that's going to run for the next 18 months to two years. Yeah, okay. Um, I was curious, like for a partner, for a firm that's getting a new partner in, mm -hmm. um, and even for a firm that's selling, but say for new partnerships, right? Do they, do you find most firms get an external valuation or do they just have a formula that they've always used in the constitution of the partnership agreement or something like that? Well, that is true. And my experience is I see a lot of unsigned partnership, partnership deeds or shareholders deeds, and uh, we see some that have finally got through to execution. Um, do they always get evaluation? Um, look, I think if it's, it, it probably depends a little bit on, it, it depends a bit on the personalities and it also depends a little bit on size. Um, the more people who are involved, 
the greater the likelihood is that you're going to get it, you're, you're going to get evaluation because mm -hmm. that need for that sort of independent sort of third party opinion. Sometimes if it's one or two people involved, they sort of, if they feel they can reach agreement between themselves and they're pretty much of the same mind, so then they might say sort of, we don't really need that. Um, uh, so I think it, I think it sort of tends to depend a little bit on um, how many people are involved, sort of the sort of how close they are sort of having a similar view. And also sometimes if it's a new partner who's coming in, but who maybe maybe less experienced, there's a there's a wish on both sides to say, let's get an independent view on this because that independent view means that one, we're not trying to sway you one way or the other. Mm. You're not sort of missing something because you're sort of less experienced in, in, in this area. So, um, um, so I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure there's there's plenty of cases where they don't get it, where, where evaluation is not sought, but um, increasingly sort of um, they're, they're looking for an independent view of value. What's the advice you're giving to kind of firms, you know, under your you know knowledge of umbrella or stewardship, etc. Um, that say, Greg, you know, we've got another partner coming in. What's the best way to structure that? Should we vendor finance them? Should we do a gradual kind of entry level point or you know should we just keep everyone salary part like what, what's the optimal way to do it yeah um i that, that's i mean it's a great question and sort of also a hard one to answer sort of when you look across the marketplace uh but increasingly sort of firms are going through this issue of um saying sort of how do we structure and particularly firms that are growing how do we structure for succession because mm, it's a big issue well, one of the challenges that's there is, I mean, if you look at the very large firms, the very large firms are no goodwill practices. Um, there's no goodwill there. Sort of when people come in, sort of they pay, um, they pay a contribution towards working capital sort of to come into the firm. When they leave the firm, they get, a, they get their contribution sort of back. Um, they earn their money while they're there. And so sort of there is, there's no recognized goodwill. And you know, part of the, part of the, rationale behind that is to remove it barriers remove barriers to entry um, yep. the with most of the small small medium firms goodwill recognized and, and continues to be continues to be recognized and it's, it's there's a real challenge to move from being a goodwill firm to a non-goodwill firm so because um, um, ultimately you create some winners and losers sort of in that space as I say, the vast majority of firms are goodwill firms and have goodwill recognition. And so then the question is, how do you finance? How, how do you finance that for somebody coming in? Um, I think there's a couple of a couple of ways to do that. Um, a, a number of the banks now have um, uh, packages that are specifically designed sort of for that. So mm -hmm. they will provide the finance. Yeah, look, it's subject to all the, the normal criteria that sort of is in play. But they'll provide financing for um, um, in, incoming partners, um, and they'll either secure that financing against um, the ideally the share of the practice, or sort of they may want sort of to get sort of broader broader support sort of from, mm -hmm. from the practice itself. Um, obviously, from a a vendor's point of view, sort of the vendor principal's point of view, um, they could consider they could consider self funding. Um, I, I, prob I probably would say that you're better to um, you're better to have a financier providing the funding 
even that, that funding may be supported through the firm in some way um, than to just provide vendor financing because vendor financing is um, you know, sometimes it's a recipe for other disputes or arguments sort of further down the track. Um, mm. So um, I think in terms of return, um, look, we, we and I, I, as I said, so the accounting practice is one of the great things about them is um, the, the principals and partners can choose how what the rules are and how they work. Um, I, I really do like, and we, we, we certainly subscribe to the idea of principals and partners should be paid for the work they do and they should be paid for the work they do at their market rate. So um, I think um, separating out your return on labour from your return on investment and mm -hmm. return on ownership really is good, is, is good business sense to do that. So I, I certainly suggest to firms that they consider having a market-based salary sort of for uh, principals and partners where everybody where everybody gets paid whatever their market-based um, salary should be. Depending on the type of role they're playing in the firm? Yeah, look, depending on the type of role and it might sort of, um, uh, I mean, again, if you go back to the salary surveys, what you'll find is, look, there's a bit of variation between a business services partner and a tax specialist tax partner, a specialist corporate finance partner. But, you know, I mean, the variation is not huge. It, yeah. You know, it might it might be um, um, I think the range sort of between sort of or you know there might be forty dollars yeah, in it sort of but it's, it's not huge. Um, so one depending on sort of the area they're working in, and two depending on their level of specialisation or expertise. So if you've got somebody who is um, um, who is highly experienced, you might have a you might within your firm have a range that says um, um, look at our range for a business services partner is. As an example, our, our business services partner gets paid 180,000, and our range is um, um, is sort of 180 to 220, mm -hmm. for instance, is is sort of where typical, where yep. Um, and that sort of allows for a little bit of differentiation in terms of experience, size of size of um, client portfolio they're managing, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And do you recommend equal partnership in terms of equity? Should everyone be an equal partner, or should there be a staggered approach? I, I don't see the the equal partnership model was certainly sort of where the profession has come from, um, and, and sort of you know we're, we're all equals, and so we're, we're we're all in the same boat. It's very much the collegiate mentality of um, of professional services firms, and there's a lot to be said for the collegiate mentality. I just don't think it's realistic um, in, in today's environment, uh, and there is no reason why equity should be dealt with that way. Um, I think also allowing differential equity <clears throat> provides a mechanism for some of those younger partners to actually sort of get a foothold into the firm. You know, they, they may not be comfortable committing themselves for um, for a couple of million dollars and they may not even be sort of have the capacity sort of to do it at the yeah. time. Um, providing them with the ability to take a foothold where they come in and sort of take a you know, perhaps a five percent stake with it, with the view that they're going to build that five percent stake up over the years um, to a, um, um, to a well, significant one. Meaningful sort of, um, I, I think, makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, um, you know, every firm makes their own mind up on this, but I think differential equity sort of has a has a lot of lot going for it. Yeah, okay, Greg. I wanted to get to know you a little bit. How did you get into accounting all these years ago? 
when you say how did I get into accounting, I presume you mean how did I get into professional practice? Yeah, well, just accounting. Like, yeah. what made you? I guess you would have chosen the degree at some yeah, stage. I, and... I mean, I came out of school and uh, sort of um, decided sort of that accounting sort of had an appeal for me, and I worked in fairly quick order. Um, and it, it's it's probably I, I took an unusual route into professional practice in that um, I didn't work for another professional firm sort of before I ended up going into practice. Um, I did um, um, I did two years with government. Mm-hmm. I did two years in a diversified public company and I did two years with a fast growth entrepreneur. And when I say two years, it was rough and plus or minus. So, um, and it, it, what, there, was no, there was no design to that. It was just the way I, I did two years with government and, um, and sort of said, I can't take this anymore. So, uh, <laughs> Um, I need to get out. Um, I did two years with with a uh, publicly listed company. Um, so all commercial accounting kind of stuff. All commercial accounting. Yeah. yeah. And two years then with this fast growth entrepreneur, and I actually think sort of it, and I learned things from each one of them, um, mm. and that experience fitted me sort of. Um, and not, this is not something that I would recommend to people <laughs> today to do, uh, but it sort of worked. It just worked for me at the time. Um, with that blend of experience, um, at the at the tender age of um, I think it was 26, um, I decided the world needed another another accounting firm, and so um, that was the um, that was the um, genesis of Hayes Knight. Even though you've never done a, a tax return prior to that, on a I, I'd done a tax return prior to that because back in I do age myself when I say back in those days. Uh, back <laughs> in those days, once you had completed the tax module of your um, degree, mm-hmm. you could actually apply to become a tax agent. So mm-hmm. um, you didn't need any uh, practice experience. Um, all you needed was that you'd completed the tax module of a recognised course. Um, so I, uh, I completed my tax module and said, um, I should become a tax agent and uh, I became a tax agent and whilst I was um, um, finishing sort of uh, finishing my degree and also um, working I did a little bit of um, uh, very small stuff I, I did um, small entry-level tax work individual tax work and you know, mm-hmm. a few contractors and very small businesses so you had exposure to it basically I had a little bit of exposure yeah but what made you decide like you had those three different experiences yeah. um, what made you decide the world needs another accountant? I want to be a tax accountant. Uh, look, I think it was probably part of it was the entrepreneurial side, in the sense that um, the appeal of being my own, the, the appeal of being my own boss, um, mm-hmm. and being able to grow something and do something, sort of was was certainly there even in those days. And um, I looked at the I looked at the accounting marketplace and said, "There's a I, I understand. I think I understand and." I, probably I would say naively I said this to myself when at 26 years of age, I think I understand business and I think I understand um, sort of what's going on out there. I think there's an opportunity in the accounting marketplace and um, I could build up a client base in reasonably good order and um, probably earn some reasonable money out of it at the same time. But why not just go into a different business, like get a franchise, open a subway, or start a... You know, because you said you work for a startup, but you go into yeah. any kind of business. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I mean, why not? Um, probably innate conservatism of of an accountant. Sort of, um, I I saw myself as an accountant. I knew accounting. Um, 
I thought reasonably, I was reasonably competent in accounting. Yeah. I saw myself as an accountant. So what's the natural next step out of accounting business? I've got a question for you. If you weren't an accountant, what would you be? Uh, if I wasn't an accountant, what would I be? Um, look, I, I think whatever it was, it, it, well, I think the answer is I'd be an entrepreneur. Um, I, um, I need to be continually, um, I need to be continually challenged to see new things and have mm. an opportunity to go after new things. So um, that, that sort of is, is, is what's important to me. Okay. And, and, and fortunately, over my professional life, um, I've had the opportunity to, when I say reinvent myself, that's probably not the right word, so I've had the opportunity to evolve into different areas. And mm. um, you know, when you mentioned sort of, you know, I, I started out as a practitioner with no clients, no staff, um, and, and built an accounting practice, and then sort of from building, building an accounting practice, we were able to develop a federation model sort of across Australia and New Zealand. Um, we um, came up with the concept of, um, of Knowledge Shop um, uh, back at the time when the, the GST sort of came in um, and um, you know, we, we, built a, we built that business, we built a wealth business, sort of we took yeah. them into a, a, a listed model. Um, so that, that, I guess that if, if I look back over my professional career, um, there are sort of these landmark events that have occurred at different points in time, sort of which have been, um, um, which have been sort of an evolution sort of, of, um, of um, uh, my professional life. Which one of those achievements are you most proud of? Uh, every one of them at the time. <laughs> every one of them at the time. If somebody said to me today, would you ever have thought as a 26-year-old you could have had the experience that you've had over the, over the past, what is about 40 years, then um, I, I never would have seen that. So I've, one of the things that I do have is I, I probably have an ability to look out over about five years mm. and say sort of this is what I think is likely to be occurring. This is sort of where, where we think sort of we can position ourselves. Um, we've been, or I, I've been fortunate enough that um, not only to be exposed to um, a great group of people in terms of sort of the Hayes Knight people, uh, but also to be exposed to um, some fantastic clients. And, you know, you mentioned that we met each other at, um, so when I was involved in the City of City business, Small Business Awards, and you know, we met some great people, sort of business owners sort of out of that. And I, I love meeting businesses and sort of um, um, understanding their story and sort of the differences mm. that are there. Um, Is that your driver, yeah. basically? What's that to me? Like, because one of my questions is like, what after all these years in accounting and, and doing what you do, like, what what's your driver? Like, what makes you get up every day and keep on doing this? Uh, look, I think what makes me get up each day and keep on doing it, I, I really I enjoy business, mm. and I enjoy people who are good at their business and trying to to achieve things. And you know, I mean, we, I've been fortunate enough that over over that period of time. Um, both through the relationship Hayes Knight has with um, many accounting firms and through um, uh, what evolved and developed through Knowledge Shop, um, we, we, have, uh, we have incredibly broad and wide contacts across the, across mm. the accounting marketplace and the accounting community. Um, and all of that causes me sort of to um, be able to engage and work with um, 
other professionals um, and also sort of engage and work with um, uh, with businesses. So um, I, as I say, I, I love business and I love sort of seeing sort of the, the things that people are taking on and um, uh, producing some some incredibly unique results. What's your end game then, given that you have achieved so much already? Uh, my end game? Well, I've got a 16-year-old who's learning to drive at the present time. So <laughs> my end game, sort of, I guess, at the short-term end game is to survive the next 12 months to get him to his driver's license. Yes. Um, and um, no, look, I, I, I mean, I don't have an end game. I think my, my end game is to keep enjoying what I'm doing. And sort of at some stage when I don't enjoy what I'm doing, sort of, um, maybe maybe I stop doing it, but um, I, I'm hopeful that um, that I keep um, keep enjoying sort of what I'm doing, albeit it'll it, it'll change it, well, as it always does. It'll change over time. Is there anything else in your bucket list, or like any goals that you like? Yeah, I actually want to take this off. Um, oh look, Yeah, no. Look, I, I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a bucket list as such in the sense of I've got to do this. I've got to do this before I die. Um, I've. I've. I've done a lot of things, and it is just about. It is just about being aware of and looking out for where the next challenge comes from, mm. and um, being prepared sort of to to grab hold of that challenge and. Um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm in the fortunate situation where I've seen a lot of things that have occurred and sort of a, um, a, a lot of things that have worked and, and haven't worked. Um, and so I just continue to look at challenges and opportunities and say sort of, you know, where can you do something that, one, you'll get some enjoyment out of and also is meaningful. And, yeah, and not okay. all of that, I mean, not all of that's about sort of making money. I sort of spend a bit of my time with, with a few charitable groups at the present time and, um, you know, can use some skills sort of to... Um, do, do some things in, in that space as well. Yeah, okay. Um, you've also got one of the unique things about your, you and your firm, I guess you're one of the few, if not the only CPA in the top 100. Yeah. Um, how did that come about and how has it, has it caused any challenges in terms of clients or like, because most of your network are probably CAs instead of CPAs? Uh, look, I, I, I am and have been for most of my professional life, I am totally agnostic <laughs> about um, professional professional designations, and that's not that's not meant to be disrespectful to any professional designation. Um, I think there, um, I, I think in the marketplace generally, and I'm talking about the business marketplace. In the business marketplace generally, I almost never come across anybody who says to me. Are you a CPA? Are you a chartered accountant? Are you a member of, um, um, you know, one or other of one or, or other of professional body? Um, people say, so are you are you an accountant, sort of, or mm. an accountant and sort of a business advisor? So, at a client level, sort of, um, no one cares. Is, yeah, at a client level, sort of, it's not something that people differentiate on. Um, at a professional level. Um, and as an employer, we we employ CPAs, we employ CAs. Um, uh, some of my a number of my partners are CAs. Um, but again, you know, as an employer, 
um, we're agnostic. Sort of, we, we want we want people to belong to a professional body because okay. a professional body, without question, um, uh, brings with it a uh, you know, it, it brings with it sort of responsibilities. It brings with it um, uh, a, a level of a level of training, sort of a, a level of development. Um, I've seen people who are members of all professional bodies who I would not employ and I would not want to deal with. Yep. And I've seen people from all professional bodies who I have the highest level of respect for um, in terms of um, in terms of what they do. So, has being a has being sort of a member of one body or the other sort of um, had had a significant impact. Um, I don't want to say I don't think so. It, it, the only thing I will say is that I think if you're a member of a professional body, um, spend some time getting involved with that professional body if you can. Um, mm. And I, I certainly had the privilege with CPR Australia of um, being involved in a number of their, I'm not at the present time, but I had the privilege of being involved sort of, you know, I, I chaired their sort of public practice committee, I chaired their small business committee, I chaired their national small business committee. Um, I, I sat on a number of, uh, of, yeah. of other areas. Um, and, and I think that's, that involvement sort of is, is great. I mean, you learn things from it, you meet other practitioners. Um, so I, I think being engaged with your professional body sort of is, is certainly important thing. Okay. What would you do differently in your career? Like with the benefit of hindsight? Oh, with the benefit of hindsight, not make some of the mistakes I, that I made. Um, and um, and I think that I think that much. I mean the reality is, um, if you're an entrepreneur, and I am an entrepreneur, um, if you're an entrepreneur, you will make mistakes. Yeah. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, you'll make mistakes. But um, certainly, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you you will make mistakes. And so you've got to be willing to go into a you've got to be willing to go into something knowing that it could be the wrong choice that you're making. Um, as long as you risk manage that choice and, and risk managing that choice, I think means that professionally you don't compromise yourself at all. And if you're taking a business risk, then make it a quantifiable business risk that um, if, if it doesn't come off and um, worse comes to worse, that you haven't sort of, um, you, you haven't bet the farm on it. Um, mm. And um, so that, that, I suppose that risk management approach, that at a professional level, sort of take a zero risk approach. At a business level, sort of take a um, take a, a a risk approach that um, is, is manageable for you. I think is is important. Okay. I mean, what what are some of the biggest hurdles you've had to overcome in your career, or mistakes you've had to deal with? Look, I mean, I think the transition—not so much a mistake, but the transition from a from a sole practice to a small, medium practice mm -hmm. um, to a larger practice, um, they're transition hurdles that you, you have to go across and they're transition hurdles that you have to go across with um, clients and relationships with clients that you've built over a long time. Um, as, as I said, so when I first moved from that sole practice to small, medium practice, there were clients I had to say to sort of, I'm not the person who's going to look after you. Um, mm. you know, and there was a management process to, to do that. Um, that it probably took me, it probably took me two years to go from managing 400 clients to managing 20 clients. Um, 
and, and retaining most of the rest of the 400 sort of within the firm sort of with with different people but it was a, it was a long a long exercise and there, there were a few cases where I actually lost some clients and they were clients who you know I respected sort of I enjoyed working with they were nice people and it's, it caused me to just stop and pause and say am I doing the right thing here mm. um, because you know I, I've lost that client sort of and I didn't want to lose that client am it's always painful client? to lose a client isn't it yeah, none of us. I, I guess none of us like to do that. But I think you, you've actually got to step back and say, again, to this, what we talked about before, strategically, strategically, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. If strategically I'm doing the right thing, and then this becomes one of the costs of doing that. And I don't just mean cost in a financial sense. Collateral damage. Or cost in relationship sense. But, yeah. uh, but I mean, with, with each of those people, and there was only a handful, but with each of those people I lost, I was able to shake hands with them and sort of say, sort of, look, wish you all the best, understand why you're doing it. And if you ever need us in the future, so don't hesitate to give me a call. And in fact, in a couple of those cases over the years, I've actually had some of those people who've sort of come back to me and said, sort of, could we come back and talk to you about something? Sort of, um, um, we, we think we just need to re-engage. Okay. So I think that transition stage sort of represents a challenge. Um, and, you know, sometimes if you look back at things, you say, I should have done things faster or I should have done things, um, I should have done things sort of somewhat differently, but I, I think that's just that the reality is um, uh, nobody gets it right all the time, nobody bats 100 and um, um, you, know, you, you look at um, you look at sort of Bradman's batting average and then look sort of at the next person down, so there's a, there was a big gap there um, um, and I'm not suggesting for one moment sort of um, I got to Bradman's sort of average, but so there's a big gap down there, and that just means sort of that there are people who are going to make mistakes and do things in a different way, sort of as they go along. Mm. What well, What are some of the things that you believe in that most others disagree on, or I think you're crazy about? Well, some of the things that I believe in, um, I, I I strongly believe in the importance of um, I strongly believe in the importance of soft skills and the the importance of developing soft skills within um, within accounting firms and professional services firms, um, you know, I, I think that um, I think the accountant, to some extent, does need to reinvent themselves, um, not not necessarily change themselves. Um, mm. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to change accountants, and um, I, I don't think sort of I don't think sort of the change. Um, I don't think you want to change from where you are to totally to something else. But I, I do think you need to reinvent and sort of continue up, up to upskill and, uh, and grow and develop. Um, uh, I think those things are, are going to be important um, going forward. Um, I, and I think that the challenge that's there for, as I say, I think one of the challenges that's there for, for both accountants and also for small businesses to be much more strategic than they have been. Sort of business is more complex today. Um, it's it's more complex. It moves at a faster rate. Um, it changes more quickly. Um, that all means that um, you've got to be one. You've got to be more aware of your environment, hmm. and you've got to be sort of much more strategic in the decisions that you take. Um, I couldn't have. Um, I, I'm not sure that what I did, as I say, what I did sort of over, over the last um, 
30 or 40 years, I wouldn't say that's a recipe for what people should be doing today. If, if, um, if I was starting again, I, I would be to be much more strategic in terms of um, uh, what I was doing. Yeah, okay. I think sort of where I got to, and it's not to say that it necessarily would have been uh, a greatly different result. I think I was, I think I was reasonably intuitive and I was able to pick up some trends and sort of um, uh, and take advantage of those trends sort of as we went along, but it wasn't always, um, it became increasingly strategic, but it wasn't always strategic. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of hindsight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, some rapid fire questions and we'll finish up. Yep. What does downtime look like for Greg? Downtime for me is um, enjoying um, enjoying sort of time with, uh, with, with family. So as I say, sort of I've got a, Teaching them how to drive. Yeah, teaching the youngest how to drive. So I've got I've got four kids and they're spaced out. Sort of, um, well, I could just stop and say they're spaced out, but their ages are spaced <laughs> out. Um, so my, my children range from uh, sixteen years of age to um, to forty years of age. Um, so I've got a pretty wide span of, wow. of children, um, and um, including some some grandchildren. Uh, so spending sort of time with them, I. Um, younger generation, I think, is really important. And um, again, in terms of where I spend my time, both at a family level and um, also in terms of some of the charitable stuff that I do, I'm very keen on sort of um, being able to sort of add value, sort of, or, or work with um, work with young people. Um, uh, travel. Um, I know you used to be an avid fan of traveling. Yeah, well, look, I, I, a friend of mine sort of, I, I think I saw on Facebook the other day, sort of uh, a whole list of how many countries have you visited? And a friend <laughs> of mine in New Zealand had um, responded to it um, and um, had clicked up um, of, the, of the cities that were nominated and clicked up sort of 45 cities. And I, I went through and did a quick count. And I think I was at 42 sort of cities around the world that, I, I, that were on that list that I'd been to. So travel sort of I, I enjoy. Um, I think also the international connections, and that's probably one of the um, disadvantages with COVID at the moment. Uh, some of my friends in other parts of the world, I can see them sort of on on Zoom or follow mm. them on, on Facebook or the like, but sort of not being able to sort of catch up and spend time with them um, is, um, is, is there. And um, I, I suppose whilst um, some of the things that I do at a charitable level are... Um, um, I'd probably regard that as a bit of downtime sort of from professional life whilst um, using some of your professional skills like sort of using it in a, uh, in, in a different way. Okay. What's your favourite quote? Favourite quote? Um, mm, well, I think, um, yeah, let, let's cycle on, Michael. <laughs> what have you read, watched, or learned recently that's had the most impact on you? In terms of reading, um, I... I, I actually probably at the moment am reading sort of more fiction than than non-fiction, but in terms of um, non-fiction, I enjoy reading sort of I enjoy reading sort of the biographies um, of, uh, of of people who I either know or have um, come in contact with, and some of those are in the sporting field and uh, uh, some in business and or politics. Um, I, I think sort of uh, reading other people's life experiences. Um, are, um, are always are always fascinating. Well, whose biography would you recommend if if you can only choose one that people must read? Whose would it be? 
look, I, I would have, when I say I wouldn't have one that sort of fits there and I'm, I'm sitting here sort of looking at, um, that's sort of part of my, my library. I'm talking to you. I can see John Eels's book there, um, which I um, sort of, um, uh, which I really enjoyed in terms of um, just his. Um, I know John and sort of, but just his his journey sort of um, that, that he went through. Um, I look at some of the some of the business people who um, um, who, who you sort of learn in terms of just what they've done and um, um, so look I mean for me it's anybody in sport or anybody in business um, and probably mm. the occasional politician for a bit of life uh, for a bit of light humor but I mean you, you you read the stories of the Kerry Packers of this world um, mm. and sort of what what he did and sort of the experiences and um, you know particularly when you sort of jump a, jump a generation sort of across there yeah, some fascinating, some fascinating lessons. So. Things have definitely changed in a generation Absolutely. or two. <laughs> um, what have you bought recently that you really like or had an impact on you? What have I bought recently? Um, Could be even a little tiny thing. I bought some. Uh, I've, I've added to my wine collection. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, sort of being being at home, sort of has given me the opportunity to uh, just follow uh, some of the. Um, some of the different wines that are out there and releases out there, and uh, obviously with the um, uh, with Australia, and I, I'm sort of um, fiercely loyal with, with the Australian wine market suffering from um, uh, the reactions from China to it. Mm. Um, I, I'm trying to support the Australian wine market as much as I can. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and last question: Who would you want to have a drink with the most in the world, past or present? Who would I want to have a drink with? Think, um, think people who people who sort of sort of fit into that um, you know, modern, modern time people um, without question. Sort of, um, I, I think sort of Obama sort of um, was was fascinating. Sort of in terms of what um, what he did and sort of the change, some of the changes that occurred in America. Um, um, <clears throat> Because of that, what would you ask him if you only had one question? I'd probably, I'd probably ask him sort of what he thought his sort of, sort of the, the best decision was to be made and what was the worst decision. Mm. Um, and I, I find sort of when, even sort of when we, you know, even when we sort of interview somebody for for a role, sort of one of the things we ask them is what are the what are the the things you're really good at and what are the things you're not really good at and people sort of are often confronted with that uh with that sort of they're less confronted sometimes with what they're good at sort of because even allowing for modesty they'll talk about the things they like um, mm. when we ask people about what they're not good at or what was their what was the worst sort of what things they like to avoid so they're not not always as open as that so i think sometimes sort of to to understand the range that's there in people yeah. I find in job interviews they usually give like the the typical stuff they find on Google. It's like, oh, I'm just I work too much. I'm not good at balancing. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> that kind of bullshit. Yeah, that, well, that well, that there's a message in that, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> um, Greg, thank you so much for your time. It's been an pleasure. absolute pleasure. All right. Okay. Good to speak with you. 
Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like our podcast and share it on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever it is you hang out so more people can benefit from these speakers. Also, please subscribe on our website so you get all of our latest episodes. And if there's anything else I can help you with or you have speakers you'd love to hear from or some feedback about the current episode, please feel free to send an email to michael at recruitmentexpert.com.au. Until then, take care and I look forward to connecting with you in the future.